0: book of Malachi in the Old Testament to chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 9 this morning as we continue our walk through this book. Uh, last week, uh, I titled my message, The Sins of the Clergy, and this week, Malachi is continuing that same thing, but I'm going to turn it around and talk about the marks of a true minister, because one of the things that Malachi is going to focus on in this particular chapter is the covenant that was made with Levi. Levi and the call that he gave upon them to serve in the house of the Lord. Let me read this chapter, uh, verses 1 to 9, actually, for us as we begin, and then I'll pray, and we'll move into the message. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings... Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the awful from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty." But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Let's pray. Father, this is a very challenging and sobering passage That talked about the sins that were going on in Malachi's time, in which the priests were unfaithful to the covenant you have called them to. And Father, sadly, we see that in our own generation as well. That there are times and places where men who you have called have not been faithful to that ministry, and it has hurt the witness and credibility of the church. It's turned people away from the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you would raise up leaders. Young men and women, those who would have courage to stand for the truth of your word and to live with integrity as they follow Jesus Christ. Lord, may you help us in this area, and may you revive your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that is an elder or leader in the church, he desires a noble task. Paul is affirming that within the church, the desire to serve in leadership is a good thing. It's a commendable thing when the heart is right and where we want to do that for the honor and glory of God and we want to help his church become all that it can and should be. And so Paul affirms that as a noble ambition that is pleasing to the Lord. And then in that chapter, he will go on and he'll talk about the qualifications that are needed for those who would be pastors or leaders in the church. And he talks about things like they should be faithful to their spouse, they should be temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, uh, gentle, not given to drunkenness, able to teach, and so on. And what he lists there are really qualifications that he would expect of all of us as Christians. It's not that the qualifications for leaders are different, but the bar is raised. There is a higher standard that those who would lead in the church are held to. And the reason for that is because we are to be examples to the flock. That's why James will say, for example, in James 3.1, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. With that privilege of ministry comes a higher accountability. Those who teach the word are going to be held to a higher standard, and that's a sobering thing to think about. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see that emphasis. Malachi will continue his rebuke of the priests for failing to live up to the covenant God had made with them, a covenant with Levi. And this is what he's talking about. Out of all of the tribes of Israel, out of those 12 tribes, there was one tribe that God had chosen to serve at the tabernacle and then at the temple. And the Levites would be those, they were in the choir, they were the gatekeepers or the ushers, if you will. They were the ones who took care of the utensils for the house of the Lord, who helped the priests in their work. And then out of the Levites, there was just one line that was chosen to serve as priests, and that was the line of Aaron. And so Aaron and his descendants were to be the ones who offered the sacrifices or would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. With that privilege, though, came great responsibility. And that's what we're going to see in this text. And that's why God was so outspoken and so direct in calling them to account for their unfaithfulness. So how does a passage like this apply to us? What can we learn from it? Well, we see that there are certain character qualities that really carry over from the Old Testament to the New Testament in terms of ministry. There are certain things that God expected in both covenants. So, what is that? What does God expect of those who are called to serve? The first thing that's, a, that's mentioned in this chapter is the need for reverence, reverence for God. And we see that in verses 1 and 2 and again in verse 5. And what was happening here was we see the priests were not honoring God by their life and by their work. And because they had failed to honor God and keep this covenant, God had sent a curse upon them, a curse upon their work even, a curse upon their life. It was a serious charge. You see, reverence for God includes giving him honor and respect. They had lost sight of the greatness and holiness of their God, and they were considering their work a burden. It was a chore. It was something that was done out of duty, not out of love. They had missed the heart of the covenant with God. Walter Kaiser calls this reverence a love for God's glory. It's a desire to see God's name lifted up, to see his name be told among the nations and his name be great. It's not about us, but it's about God and his reputation. We want to serve in a way that points others to God. And to his son, Jesus Christ. So how do we show that we have reverence for God? Well, it's in simple ways. It is shown in our worship. And we see in verse 5, when he talked about Levi, he said, this covenant called for reverence. And Levi revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. That's a pretty good word picture of what it means to show reverence for God. To stand in awe of his name. His work, his character, To stand in awe of his love. It's what we do when we come before God and we worship him. And sometimes we lift up our hands and sometimes we are quiet in our hearts. Sometimes we are overcome with emotion even in our singing. And we just stop and we say to God, thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for the change that you've made. Thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus to be our savior. And we lift him up. Reverence is shown in our life. It's shown when we ask questions like, who comes first in our life? Or who gets the credit for the accomplishments in our life? Do we give God the praise and the honor that he deserves? Do we tell him thank you for his blessings? Do we praise him for his grace that's changed our heart? And another way we show reverence for God that is called out in this chapter is by listening. The priests in this chapter had failed to listen to God and they had failed to obey his word. And you know, if you think about it, we listen to those we respect. If you are in business and you are looking for models of people who have done well or been successful in business, and you have the opportunity to hear somebody who's really done a good job at that, I mean, you listen to them because you're thinking there are things that I can learn from this person. If you are a teacher, you know, and you're starting out in your teaching profession, you look for those who have done this well, who have served a long time, that kids respect, and you respect, and other teachers respect. And when they talk, you listen, because there are things that you can learn. And you would think that the priests would have understood that, that if they are going to serve God's people, then the place where that starts is with listening to the Lord and putting that into practice. In their life. But because of their refusal to listen and to respond to correction, God had cursed them. He's pretty graphic in what he says here, too. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about the sacrifices that they are bringing and how he was not pleased with them. And he said, because of you, I'm going to rebuke your descendants and I will spread on your faces the awful from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. The offal was the entrails. I mean, when the uh, sacrifice was brought before the Lord and they gutted it and they cut out the entrails and this is a messy job, that stuff, that was called the offal, was carried outside of the camp. And what God is saying is that I'm going to take that and I'm going to smear it on your faces and you are going to be carried off. That's how disgusting and displeasing your work is to me. Now, that's shocking. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that you would not expect to hear about the priests who are supposed to be serving the Lord and being an example to the people. And because of their disobedience, God not only had cursed their work, but he had caused them to be despised in the eyes of the people. Reverence is something that must be learned. Reverence for God is something that, for example, children should learn from their parents. Now, let me give you an example, and then I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. In 1997, Reeve Lindbergh, who was the daughter of Charles Lindbergh, the aviator, she was invited to speak at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., when they were observing the 70th anniversary of her father's historic flight across the Atlantic. And they had arranged for a special opportunity for her. They wanted her to come early and and be there before the crowds would gather that day. And they had brought in a cherry picker so that she could go up and actually touch and see her father's airplane close hand. I mean, if you've ever been to the Smithsonian Institute, you know that the actual plane is there. It's suspended about 20 feet above the floor, and it's up there. And she had never had the opportunity to touch that or to see, in- see into it directly, and she was so excited. And she brought with her her little son, Ben, that was going to join her that day. So they get in this cherry picker. They go on up, and for Reeve... I mean, she's just kind of trembling. I mean, she's reaching out to touch the handle grip that her father had touched many times as he opened that plane. And she's looking into the cockpit, and she's seeing how small it is and how, you know, amazing, I mean, that somebody would fly solo across the Atlantic in this small aircraft. For her, that was a holy moment. That was, you know, a time when she was kind of trembling as she had this opportunity and she leaned out to her son and she whispered and she said, Ben, isn't this amazing? And Ben looked up at his mom and he was equally impressed and he said, yeah. He goes, I've never been in a cherry picker before. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't quite catch the significance of what was going on there. You know, and I think about that with our kids, you know, they come to church when they're young and they, they love it, you know, whether it's a Sunday school or people are caring for them or they go to VBS or they get involved with the WANA and they're learning about God and they're having fun in the process of doing it and all of that is great. But they also need to learn from you and I something of what it means to show reverence for God. And kids learn reverence. We teach our children reverence for God by the way we live and by the way we talk about God. They see it in our actions. If they see that God is a priority in your life, if they see you reading the Bible or praying, if they see you going to church or serving in the church or giving in the offering, they learn reverence for God. They learn that this is important. This is what we do as a family. They hear it in the words that you use or the way you talk about God. If you, in your life, and just going about your day, you're, you're thanking God for his blessings, or when you see an answer to prayer, or you're teaching your children and you're doing a devotion with them, or you're reading them a Bible story at bedtime, you know, they learn reverence for God. I think back on my parents and how just as a child, I, I didn't even, I wasn't thinking about it, I just saw it in their example. That they went to church. That's just what we did as a family. They read their Bibles. They were involved in a Bible study. They were one of the families who maybe were the last ones to leave on Sunday morning because after the service they stayed and they were talking to people and they enjoyed that fellowship. They served in the church in different areas of ministry. They they gave and they were generous in what they did. And I, I just saw all of that in their life and I never thought about it. It just kind of internalized in me because of their example. And that's the way it should be. Reverence is something that is learned. And as parents, we teach our children reverence for God by the way we live and by the way we talk about him. Secondly, another expectation of the priests and of those who would serve God was true instruction. And we see that in verses six and seven. In verse 6, it said that true instruction was in his mouth. He's talking about Levi again and the priests who would follow him. Nothing false was found on his lips. And then in verse 7, he says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. We are to hold fast to the word of God, and we are to teach it faithfully. And here we get at one of the primary duties of pastors and leaders in the church. We see that the qualification of an overseer is that he be able to teach in 1 Timothy 3.2, that he's a person who can handle the word of God and share it with others. We see in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says that we are to be workmen who are approved by God, who correctly handle the word of truth. Now, many of you will recognize that verse from Awana. That's the, the verse on which Awana is built. And it's an example of how these things really do apply to all of us. I mean, we're all to be growing in the word and able to share our faith or share a testimony or to help people not understand the scriptures. But those who are leaders are, again, called to a higher standard. They should be able to do this well and to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And like the Apostle Paul, we are to teach the whole counsel of God. He talked about that in Acts 20 when he was with the Ephesians church. He said, I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That's why we spend time in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's why we share from the scriptures. It's why we talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ as we make disciples. We teach the whole word of God because it's all profitable. There are things that we can learn from both the old covenant and new covenant that apply to us. And in Malachi's day, Ezra the priest was a great example of this. Ezra was one of those who had come back from Persia to Jerusalem. And he was there as a good example. So you can see that there were good examples of priests at the same time that there were these priests that had fallen away from God and were leading people astray. You've got the same thing going on today. There are good pastors and there are pastors that shouldn't be in ministry because of what they are doing. Why was Ezra a great example? Well, in Ezra 7.10, it says this, that Ezra... had had devoted himself to the study of God's word and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. I love that verse. I mean, I look at that and Ezra had it right. Study, observe, teach. I mean, if we're going to teach the Word of God, we got to know it, so we have to study it. But if we teach and we say to others, well, you know, you should live like this, but, you know, I don't have to, or we're living differently, that's hypocrisy. I mean, we're not an exception. We can't get away with things because we're called to serve and think that this is for somebody else and not for us. No, we're to study it, we're to put it into practice in our own life, And we are to teach that so others can grow in their relationship with him too. One of the great theologians in American history was a man named Charles Hodge. You can see a picture of him up here. He taught at Princeton Theological Seminary for over 50 years, from 1820 to 1878, in a remarkable span. He had gone there as a student. Uh, He did study abroad for a time, came back, and he taught, and he was well-loved by the students that he worked with. He taught over 3000 students in his time there and he was the leading exponent of what was called Princeton theology, very conservative, solid biblical theology. And in his generation, he contended for the faith against Darwinism that was coming in. He contended for the faith against the European theologians and their liberal influence where they were on a quest for the historical Jesus and wanted to remove all the miraculous things from the Bible and kind of cut and paste and come up with what they thought was at the heart of it. And they were preaching Jesus is just a mere man who was a religious leader, and Hodge stood firm on inerrancy, on the authority of Scripture, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know something else about him? That what stood out as most outstanding about his life to others was his devotion to Christ. Devotion to Christ was the outstanding characteristic of his life And it was what he looked for in others. I love that. I think about this man who had this warm-hearted love for Christ. Biblical scholar, first rank. But he loved Jesus, and he loved his church, and he loved his students. And that's really what you want. I mean, those are the professors that I remember from my days in seminary too, those who had this deep love for God and the church and who taught the word with excellence, but you could see it lived out in their life. And his influence continues to this day among evangelicals. Some in his day criticized him for not being innovative in his theology or novel in his theology. And others praise him for his faithfulness, holding fast to the word of God in his lifetime. And I think, what do we want in the church? Do we want people that are novel and coming up with new doctrines or trying to change things? Or do we want people who hold fast to the word of God and preach the gospel and salvation in Jesus Christ? I mean, ultimately, that's what we want. We understand that as times change and technology changes, that there are new opportunities and resources that we can use, but we don't move away from the Word of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and the truth of the gospel. You know, in Jeremiah's generation, there were also false prophets who were leading people astray. And Jeremiah wrote this as the Lord spoke to him. He said, let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream. Let those guys who are these false prophets out there, if they have their claims, you know, okay, let them go. But let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what is straw to do with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? God's word is powerful. And it'll shatter the arguments and pretensions of the world when it is used well. And it cuts to the heart, and it convicts. I mean, the Word of God is where the power lies to change lives. When the Word of God is preached and the Holy Spirit is at work touching people's hearts and lives, and they are brought into a relationship with Christ, lives are changed for the glory of God. I love what Jeremiah said also in that chapter when he said, If they had stood in my counsel, this is the Lord speaking, if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Where does faithful exposition of the scriptures start? It starts with listening to the Lord. It starts with prayerfully coming before him and studying his word. It is standing in the counsel of God. It's kneeling before him in preparation to share from his word. And may God raise up those kind of individuals in our generation. And the third thing God asks for is godly character, godly character. And again, you can see in these things, I mean, these really are things he wants of all of us, reverence, reverence. Ability to preach or teach or share from the Scripture to be faithful to the Word and godly character to be true to what he's asked of us. It's just that those that he asks to lead, he raises the standard and looks for consistency in their example. We see in verse 6, for example, he goes back to this covenant with Levi, and he said in verse 6 that he walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from sin. I look at that and I go, what a great statement about his life. I mean, I'd love to have that on my tombstone, that Rick walked with God in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from sin. I mean, isn't that the kind of testimony that we would love to have, that we have been faithful to the Lord, and by our life, God was able to use us so that we could point others to Jesus and help him know them help them know him too? I mean, that's a great testimony. In contrast, the priests that God rebuked through Malachi had turned away from God, going their own way, considering the work of the Lord a burden. They were guilty of false teaching. They were not teaching the word of God and holding fast to it. They were letting the people get away with sin, and by their actions, they had caused many to stumble. And they had broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to this covenant that God had established with the tribe of Levi. And sadly, we see that today in the clergy as well. We see men and women who are in ministry who deny the authority of Scripture. They don't believe that it's the Word of God. They'll say things like, well, it becomes the Word of God as we pray about it or as it means something to us. And they'll talk about how this is just the writings of men and it has errors in it. And so we don't believe all of what was there. Um, we have people who are teaching from the pulpit, and they'll say, you know, it really doesn't matter whether or not this happened in history. It's just the point of a story is a, a moral or a religious truth. And they look at the Old Testament as fables. And what did Jesus say? He said, I tell you the truth, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And he talked about how we were to be faithful to teach it, even down to the very jot and tittle, even down to the smallest stroke of a pen, that this is my word and it has authority and it sits in authority over us. And I look at that and I see the need for those who will be faithful to preach the gospel. It grieves my heart again when I hear of people who deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the uniqueness of Jesus, who say that he's not the only way to God, and these are people that are serving in churches. And then to see in our generation, pastors and denominations who are affirming and approving what God calls sinful. And sexual immorality or a redefinition of marriage God's the one who defines marriage in his word between a man and a woman. God's the one who sets the standard for what morality is and should be. And we are going to be held accountable to his standard. And when I look at what's going on in the world, I just think in my heart how God expects more from his pastors and leaders. We are to be examples to others. The apostle Paul will say to the Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In as far as you see Jesus in me, follow my example. Paul will say to Timothy as a young pastor, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. And here we see that it's not age that is the relevant thing. It's our walk with God that is important. I mean, you may be younger, but if you are walking with God and God is transforming your life, you're a role model to others. You're an example to others of what it means to know Christ and to live that out. Peter will say, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And then to the church, the scripture gives this admonition. And it says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The church needs godly role models. The church is looking for leaders who walk the talk. And to do that, Quite honestly, you know, we know that when we do that, we're a target of the enemy, and we need your prayers, too. We need your support. We need to be upheld as brothers and sisters in Christ and pray for one another. And I'd encourage you to be praying for the elders in our church, the pastors, our staff, those who are leaders in all the different areas of ministry, even as we do today on this day when we prepare with prayer. Could it be that the low state of the church in America is because of the low state of the clergy and that what we need is a revival and a reformation that begins in the house of God? There are people who have a form of religion, but they deny its power. And what we need is the Holy Spirit to do its work in us once again. So what do we do? Is there hope for us? As a church, as a denomination, as a country, yes, there he is. And I want to share with you an historical example that has always been an encouragement to me, and I trust that it will be to you as well. It comes out of the 1600s, a time period when many were lamenting the low state of the church and the clergy in their day. And what did God do? Well, he raised up an individual. Here's a man, you can see his picture, Philip Jacob Spener. He was not alone, but he was one of the leaders of a movement that was called pietism. In fact, he is called the father of pietism. In the 1600s, as he looked at what was going on in the church, they had come out of the 30 years war that was just a horrible thing in Germany. Spainer was a German Lutheran pastor and they had gone through these years where Catholics were killing Protestants, Protestants are killing Catholics. It's going back and forth. It is not honoring the Lord. He looked at what was going on in the church and the lack of solid teaching He saw a church where there was uh, guilt of drunkenness, debauchery. There was a superficial observance of church ordinances. There were people who thought that they had done enough if they had been baptized, or people who thought that if they had gone to church and taken communion, they were good, but their lives and their heart were unchanged. They were not truly converted. And likewise, he saw people in ministry, pastors who were there because they considered the pulpit to be a place to make a good living or to have the respect of people, and they were in it for power, position, and title, not to serve the Lord. In fact, they wanted to get next to, you know, the kings and the earls in those days so they might get this prominent position or this knight's seat, and they were jockeying for positions like that. He looked at what was going on in the seminary and he saw young men that were more interested in drinking and card playing than studying the word of God and preaching the gospel. And it broke his heart. He grieved for the church and he wrote a book that was called Pia Desideria*, or Pious Longings, deepest longings for the church. It was a call for renewal at the deepest level, a reform movement that would give birth to this movement that is called pietism. So what was he looking for? What were his um, prescriptions, if you will, for the church that he felt God wanted us to do? He listed seven things, and I'm going to name them and see if you don't think they sound a little bit familiar. Number one, he called for biblical and practical preaching by the clergy. He wanted biblical life-related preaching and teaching. Don't talk over people's heads, but speak to them. Talk about what's going on in their life. Share from your life what you are learning, but speak to the people in ways where they can hear and understand the Scripture. And he encouraged them. He thought it would be good if they preached through whole books of the Bible so that they could hear and understand and apply the Scripture in context. He emphasized small groups within the church. He didn't think it was enough for people just to hear the word on Sunday, but they should talk about it during the week. And if we could have small groups that would meet to talk about and apply the scripture and encourage one another and pray together, that would be really good. In fact, he emphasized sermon-based small groups. He thought it would be good if the pastors would write up a few questions to go with their message on Sunday that people could take and listen. And, and think about during the week. And I think back to when we started as a church for about seven years, uh, I did that. And we had our small groups that met during the week in sermon-based small groups. He emphasized personal holiness and a practical Christianity, true conversion that you must be born again. And that true faith is expressed in love and good, ne- love and good deeds. It's shown in the way that we live. He emphasized devotion over doctrinal squabbles. He wanted people to major on the majors. Coming out of that period of war and violence, he wanted to get back to what is central in the scriptures. He emphasized the priesthood of all believers. We've all been gifted. We all can serve in the body of Christ. He emphasized that women as well as men could share what they were learning, that women should be involved using their gifts in the life of the church as well, And he emphasized sympathy over denunciation. Let's not be divisive. Let's look for those things that unite us where we can work together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that sound pretty good? I mean, I look at that and I go, this guy was a brother in the Lord. I mean, he got it. This is New Testament Christianity. And wherever you follow church history and you see movements of God that were right on target, you will see this blend of doctrine and life and this kind of emphasis. But sadly, in Schweiner's day, there were those who, who hated what he was calling for and who wanted him killed. He was a reformer, and they wanted him dead because of what he was saying in attacking their positions. And yet the things that he wrote and put in that book would give birth to this movement called Pietism that would influence all of Northern Europe. It influenced the Moravians, if you know that denomination. They sent missionaries out all over the world. The Moravians were the one who influenced and led John Wesley to the Lord. Uh, the Moravians at Hernhut had a prayer meeting that lasted for over 100 years as they met in prayer and they continued to pray and taught and shared the scripture. It influenced uh, the Lutheran Church in Scandinavia. It gave birth to denominations like the Evangelical Free Church of America and the Evangelical Covenant and the Baptist General Conference or the Swedish Baptists, as they were called originally. And they went out in these movements that came to America and had such a dynamic influence here as well. Could God do it again? Yes, He can. Yes, He can if his people will humble themselves and pray and seek his face. You know, what's going to happen in the years ahead? I don't, I don't know. I'm not a prophet to be able to say that, but I look at what's happening and I think, you know what? I think there are going to be churches that are going to close, and that's okay because they're not preaching the word of God. And if God shuts the door, that's okay. Let them be shut. And I think God's going to raise up reform movements, and he is like the Gospel Coalition today. The Gospel Coalition is a movement of pastors and churches that cross denominational lines, but it's, it's men and women who are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preaching that there is salvation in Jesus alone, that believe in the authority and inerrancy of the Scripture, that are calling for that kind of deep teaching of the Word of God and a reform movement in the church. And it's great. And I think God is also going to raise up new young leaders for the church, young pastors that will serve him, who love God, who love the Word, who love his church. And that's why I say to you, I mean, that's my prayer. That's been my prayer all along in our church that God would raise up laborers from our church who would go on into full-time ministry as well as laborers that will be trained and equipped and who'll serve right here in our church because we need both. But if God is calling you into ministry as a full-time vocation and you feel that tug on your heart, come and talk with me or talk with Pastor Jason or Pastor Justin. We want to help you. When I came and this church started, God had put on my heart to pray for 20 who would go on into full-time Christian ministry. And in the years that we have been here, we've seen over 30. And I know of eight more that are in training and preparation for that. And what a wonderful thing that is. May God continue to use you in that way through your prayers. And when we give to our vocational scholarship fund and are able to assist those going into ministry, or through the support and encouragement that you give. What a blessing that is. Let's pray. Father, you are an awesome God. And your church has, in different generations, stood up and been a light and a strong witness in the world, and sometimes it has faltered. And Father, I pray that in our generation, you would do a renewal work that would rise up and call young men and women into ministry that would strengthen and equip your church, that we would be a light for the truth of your word and the gospel of Jesus Christ in our generation. And Father, help us in our own heart to be true to your word and to live with reverence and respect for you, to train our children that way that they might come to honor you and know you, and that we would be faithful to your word and faithful in using our gifts in ministry. And Father, we will give you all the honor and glory for what you've done. It is a privilege to join with you in your work, and we are blessed to be your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.